Listeners, it's your humble host, Matthew Galt. We're taking a bit of a break ahead of Memorial Day. So today's episode is technically a rerun, well, two episodes that have been re-edited and remastered for your enjoyment. These are bonus episodes we did in the past, but I'm stringing them together here because they share a common theme. They're all about America's most popular new conspiracy. Why it isn't really anything new, and how these kinds of stories have the power to create real political change for good and for ill. There's a long series of conspiracy theories that, that basically amount to the country being governed by secret pedophile rings. You're listening to War College, a weekly podcast that brings you the stories from behind the front lines. Here are your hosts, Matthew Galt and Jason Fields. Hello, welcome to War College. I'm Matthew Galt. And I'm Jason Fields. Conspiracy theories are as old as the Republic, but the latest one seems stranger and more elaborate than most. QAnon is the internet-driven conspiracy theory that supposes Donald Trump is waging a shadow war against satanic pedophiles from inside the White House. And that's, that's the simple version. It seems ridiculous on its face, but QAnon has a loyal following, and they've actually been spotted at Trump rallies holding up Q signs. Recently, QAnon proponent Michael Lionel LeBron visited the White House and even took a picture with Donald Trump. Here to help us sort through all of this is Jesse Walker. Walker is the books editor at Reason Magazine and the author of The United States of Paranoia, A Conspiracy Theory, a book about the history of American conspiracy theories. Jesse, thank you so much for joining us. Well, thank you for inviting me on. So I guess my first question is, is QAnon really anything new? QAnon uh, itself is, is sort of the latest and maybe most elaborate remixed version of a bunch of older stories. And, and in fact, uh, the way it's set up, the, the open-endedness of it has really encouraged the remixing. Uh, I mean, all conspiracy theories, people build on them, adapt them, you know, jettison a bit, add some more, um, maybe radically revise them if, you know, someone encounters them, but they're coming at it from a different ideology. But the whole sort of QAnon system of someone sort of dropping clues and then inviting people to come up with their own ways to connect them has really allowed a whole lot of uh, different fears that are in the air to get mixed together. And on top of the fact that there's a fair chance, not just that the original person dropping these clues is a prankster, but that a number of the people, um, you know, participating and uh, uh, coming up with the versions of the story uh, may well be pranksters. You know, there, there's a part of what I think has, has fueled, you know, the absurdity of it. And, and, and this really is, I mean, some conspiracy theories, you hear them, you say, well, maybe some of that, there could be some truth to it. In this case, it, it's such a parallel reality that it's very difficult to take seriously unless you've got a reason to be just committed to the idea. It, it, unless you're coming at it with some mentality that, that makes you really want it to be true. It, it, it's very difficult to believe. But people do believe it, right? People do believe it. <laughs> I mean, it's uh, people coming at it. For, it really is. A, I, people de- number one, people definitely do believe it. Some people take it very, very seriously. But number two, it is. 
Oh, how shall I put this? A lot of people compared it to alternate reality games. These were, these, they still happen, but they were kind of, you know, all the rage for a bit about a decade ago, where often to promote a new um, movie or uh, other sort of media release, someone would drop these clues and people would, you know, participate in, you know, one, it would be like a combination between, it would be like a, a game that kind of spills out of the computers into reality, into the physical world, almost like a scavenger hunt. But you might have, in one case, one of the clues was actually literally written on a bathroom wall for people to find. You get, people would even be getting phone calls and faxes that would have you know more clues coming to them. And I think a lot of the appeal to this is that it's like one of those games. I'm not the first person to make that comparison. And so that kind of leaves open the question, how many of the people are really, really believing it, as we know some are? How many of the people are just sort of having fun with it and not taking it seriously? And how many are in this sort of in-between state where they're kind of thinking as if, you know, well, what if this is true? And the thing is, all three of those people can add their speculations to, to the pot, you know, online, and someone else might take it seriously and pick it up. So it's, and obviously we don't have good survey data or anything like that on it. I mean, what we have is things like how many people watch a YouTube video. And as everyone knows, people watch YouTube videos for all sorts of reasons. It might be because they believe it, might be because they're laughing at it, might be because, you know, it started and after, it took them 30 seconds to turn it off. So we're really kind of coming at this with a lot of just, I mean, as outsiders, open questions about the different ways people are using the stories, the, the different way people are processing the story. And again, I, it's, uh, I mean, since I think we're all, you know, who are not really far gone, um, I mean, outside of like the collection of believers, the rest of us kind of recognize that this is nonsense. And there's, uh, and that therefore the person, you know, dropping these things is either deliberately doing some sort of disinformation or is acting as a prankster or as, as a profiteer. I mean, that's certainly a, one thing that's very likely. And one of the stories I've seen, it tries to look into who might be behind it, uh, certainly kind of leans in that direction. So it's, uh, when you've got that kind of, I mean, creativity is kind of a misleading word for it because that, that's kind of a positive word. But, you know, that, that kind of, uh, you know, mixture of creativity and combustibility, it, it really just keeps spiraling in different directions. What's interesting now is that it's harder to maintain belief in it because, you know, the most recent uh, events and, you know, the, the Mueller investigation, uh, you know, what happened with Manafort, also what happened with Cohen, which I know is not, strictly speaking, part of the Mueller investigation kind of cuts against this theory, which had it, you know, that the the special counsel and, and uh, Donald Trump were secretly working together to clear out this grand pedophile conspiracy. So the question then becomes, how do people deal with this? Well, a lot of QAnon predictions have not come true in the past, so someone can keep on ignoring uh, elements of the story or revising the story in order to make it fit. But at some point, this probably starts to fall apart. People sort of drift away from it. But it never completely dies because elements of it are still there to be remixed in the future, just like parts of this story have been used in conspiracy stories, you know, going back decades. Can you get into that a little bit? I'm wondering what some of the historical antecedents are, what some of the older stories are that are being dredged up now. Well, I mean, there's a long series of conspiracy theories that, that basically amount to the country being governed by secret pedophile rings. 
Kathy O'Brien is probably the most infamous, or was, I mean, until recently, uh, the most infamous uh, example of a conspiracy theorist like this. You know, she claimed that she had been uh, part of a, of a government mind control program that involved her being passed around among different leaders of the elite. And she wrote a book called Transformation of America. And it's two words, transformation, uh, that, you know, made these allegations back in the 90s. And she had, you know, been talking about it earlier than then. And there were previous allegations, you know, going back to um, 1980, maybe even the late 70s, people making claims like this. I mean, of course, then, then if you even go back earlier than that, I mean, also you had things like the McMartin preschool case. I mean, it's not just fringe stuff. There's the whole satanic panic of the 1980s. This didn't usually involve the leaders of uh, of America being uh, involved in this, at least not in the versions that caught on in the mainstream. But this idea that there were these networks of child molesters and Satanists who were, you know, working behind the scenes to capture children, to molest, or in some versions of the story, sacrifice them. You have things like, in the in case of the McMartin Preschool, alleged secret tunnels underneath them, which, of course, we saw the same sort of thing being claimed in the Pizzagate story. Now, there are some post-Pizzagate conspiracy theories about, I was just reading this morning, about a donut shop in Portland where they were claiming there were uh, secret tunnels beneath it. And, and in fact, this goes back a long, long time ago, stories like that, because, you know, in the in the 19th century, some of the tales people told about uh, convents were very similar in terms of, you know, the abuse of children, secret tunnels underneath. And um, one that I uh, wrote about after the, the guy showed up at Comet, at Comet Pizzeria with a gun uh, back in 2016, uh, I pointed out that in 1834, a guy didn't just show up with a gun. A whole mob showed up and burned down a convent in Charlestown, Massachusetts because they were convinced that the, the people who worked and lived there were, you know, holding the students and young women in sexual slavery and that there were secret tunnels and so on, everything you expect in a pizzeria, right? And there was, uh, and, and in that case, uh, it was, you even had, I mean, people talk about quote-unquote fake news like it's something new. Well, you had handbills and placards that were written anonymously and being passed around that were making all these claims about what was going on in there. And in fact, if you want like an optimistic takeaway from this, compare them, you know, burning down the convent to like one guy showing up with a gun and not managing to hit anything. I mean, maybe the trend line is in the right direction. But yeah, there's there's and it's not surprising that stories like these this keep coming back because, you know, it speaks to the same sorts of anxieties. People are always concerned about terrible things being done to children. I mean, that's something that's just. Uh, hardwired into us, although it manifests in different ways. So it shouldn't be surprising that people would tell stories in the 1830s that are similar to stories people are telling in the 2010s. It's interesting to me, though, that it's become so tied up with politics now. Do you see a reason why it's transformed from, uh, you know, convents to, is it just whatever the authority figure is of the day? Well, the convents weren't the authority figure of the day, obviously, because this was this was in the United States. Yeah, but the States. church, yeah, right, yeah. I mean, well, right, but I mean, the, the church was sort of, yeah, but the church was feared as outsiders, or at least by the people who went to burn it down. I mean, those were Protestants, not Catholics, who uh, Got Got went it. after the convent. But yeah, I mean, it's it's really just a matter of you know. Different stories get combined. I mean, in the case of QAnon, you've got this sort of history of you know fear of pedophile conspiracies, and that's been 
flaring up recently, you know, in the mainstream, you know, all these concerns about human trafficking and often re- reaching into the realm of the sort of dubious and conspiratorial. If you look at some of the stuff that gets passed around on Facebook or even gets repeated in the local news and that, and then you've got these other stories going around about the deep state and it's kind of natural that people would try to combine them. I mean, am I natural? I mean, that's the sort of cultural evolution you might expect to see. In the case of, I mean, the stuff I was mentioning with Kathy O'Brien and some of the other folks who uh, claim to have been victims of uh, pedophile rings in the 80s and 90s, that's the earliest I've seen of combining it with fears of government conspiracies. That doesn't mean it didn't happen before then. I'm, I'm, I'm not going to make a strong claim like that's the first time it ever happened. But I think there were particular reasons why people would start mixing it then. You had just had a bunch of genuine scandals in the mid-70s coming out of the CIA doing like genuine terrible things in, in the name uh, uh, you know, MK Ultra is the one that people point to, where they were doing, you know, uh, giving people um, psychedelic drugs without their consent and and things like that. And it was sort of tied up with how do you resist brain? How do we train people to resist brainwashing? Is this something maybe something that we would be able to do to people as well? So that stuff comes out, and then that obviously, I mean, naturally gets adapted by people who've got sort of broader conspiracy fears around brainwashing and mind control and things like that. And so once you've got that current going strong uh, at the end of the 1970s, at the same time that you've got this resurgent and really at the end of the 70s, beginning of the 80s, you've got this intense wave of fears of of pedophile rings and, and missing children conspiracies and things like that just starting to crest. It's not surprising that they would combine then. And so now we've got another moment where you've got the two sets of concerns both cresting at the same time. And not only can people combine them, but they can look back at this whole literature that's emerged over the past few decades of people who have mixed them in the past. And so that allows it to happen more quickly and constant combination, recombination, evolution. Do you think the Internet has just kind of allowed all of this to happen faster? How, how has it changed the conspiracy game? Uh, I think the Internet has allowed the news cycle in general to work faster, and that includes, I guess, what you could call the alternative news cycle, or this is maybe three steps removed alternative. But, you know, everybody is writing and transmitting things more quickly. I don't think that the Internet has increased the general volume of conspiracy thinking. I, I don't think there's strong evidence for that, and to the extent that we have evidence of like the level of conspiracy thinking in America. If anything, it's probably a little lower now than it's been in the past. Although again, that's that's very hard to measure, but I've seen one study that attempts to, and that's basically what the conclusion it reached. But the internet does mean that a new story can be written more quickly and spread more quickly and then be debunked more quickly and mixed with another story more quickly. Everything happens faster. There might not be uh, more people thinking about conspiracies, but they um, might come up with more conspiracy theories that morning before breakfast. Kind of another one of the the pillars of this is the the idea of this deep state or a shadow government, kind of separate from the pedophilia accusations, I think. And this is an idea that predates even the republic itself, right? This goes back to the colonial era. Oh, yeah, sure. I mean, it's – oh, what was the um, phrase that I quoted Edmund Burke using? I think it was the double government. Two systems of administration were to be formed – one which should be in the real secret and confidence, the other merely ostensible. 
So, you know, this is literally centuries ago. And the person who's very prominent and influential and intelligent, you know, using that kind of uh, that same basic idea. And of course, there's there's something to it. I mean, it's especially in the context of you know, the British uh, court. I mean, I, court intrigue is, is famous. There, there's a reason why that phrase exists. And, and there's, I'm, I'm not uh, trying to make Edmund Burke out to be um, a nut in, in his uh, ability to, you know, think hey, what's going on in public is not always the same as going on in private. We know that is, in fact, the case. But then you can take it in, in all sorts of extreme directions. I mean, Burke also, um, this is moving away from the secret government idea, but it's one thing that I had and didn't fit into the book. Burke was uh, believed that the uh, Bavarian Illuminati was behind the um, French Revolution and actually wrote a fan letter to one of the people who wrote a tract to that effect. And I wish I had the letter in front of me. But, I mean, he basically uh, said, yeah, I, I think you're on to something. I, I may even know some of the folks who are involved in stuff like this. So he was sort of prone to conspiratorial thinking. But, you know, it, it was not absurd to think that, that that there's a difference between what's presented in the public and what's going on in private. And, of course, in the 20th and 21st century, the the, the sort of the room for thinking that expands because government gets so much larger. All these new bureaucracies are formed. Secret bureaucracies are formed. And in some cases, bureaucracies with secret budgets that so you don't know how much is being spent on this intelligence agency. Or I mean, the, some people who are briefed on it know, but the general public doesn't. And that lack of transparency, of course, opens the door, not just for all kinds of actual misbehavior, but for all kinds of speculation about what misbehavior might be going on. And, and that makes room for all sorts of theories. Do you see that as kind of the function of this is, is kind of a folkloric way for people to process not not being able to know what's going on in a FISA court? Well, I, I don't know if it's, I should say, as specific as the FISA courts, because I don't know how many people who don't follow politics would recognize that phrase. But it's more of a general sense that they don't know everything that's going on in the, uh, well, I mean, we'll back up. When you say this, are you referring specifically to sort of the deep state conspiracy theories around Donald Trump and so on? No, no, no. I'm talking about conspiracy theories. I'm using that as kind of a, a segue to get into why is this part of the American landscape in general? Why are conspiracy theories so popular? What function do they serve in our society? I mean, I think in general, if a story catches on, even if the story doesn't have anything in it that's true, if it catches on, it tells you something, it tells you something true about the anxieties and the, the experiences of the people who believe it. And so often you have stories that are just sort of a mythic way of talking about something, something that people have experienced or just something that they're, they're afraid of for whatever reason. And in general, where there, I, it, I don't want to suggest that a lack of transparency is essential for a conspiracy theory because that's not true. It's, it's not as though sunlight would bring all conspiracy theorizing to an end, but it's, I think it is very much the case that when people don't know what's going on, they're more likely to fill that in with speculations, often dark speculations. And that's not just true of the government. There's a reason why people have, uh, ha there's this long history of conspiracy theories about what's going on in secret societies, what's going on in churches that, you know, meet in secret. I shouldn't say, you know, churches, I should say religions in general, where people meet in secret. It, or just if... You, the fears that people have of outsiders, of foreign cultures, 
are obviously magnified by the fact that they're, they have less direct experience of that culture, especially if it's overseas. But if there's, you know, if, if say there's been a wave of immigration and there's, you know, an ethnic group that's largely speaking its own language and their, their, uh, their folk ways seem mysterious to, you know, the uh, people who, um, who they're now sharing a country with, all sorts of stuff gets projected onto those folkways and onto that language. And, you know, that that's had all resulted in all kinds of conspiracy theories and often, you know, very tragic results. So it's it's, it's in general, it, it's not just a matter of government transparency, but anytime there's just some mystery about what's going on over there, that just opens up all sorts of more room for conspiracy thinking. There's one conspiracy theory that is interesting to me just in this context. You know, Donald Trump brought up the JFK assassination during the 2016 campaign and directly linked Ted Cruz to the conspiracy theories. So I have a question, which is, I mean, this is one of the more studied ones. And there have been so many reports and there have been so many various theories, of course, that are you know still around. I find that it's impossible at this point, having read some of these theories, I have no idea what happened in the Kennedy assassination, even though, even though I guess my tendency is to believe the Warren Commission. Long story short, do you think that no matter how strange or out there a conspiracy theory is, that it has an impact on American consciousness? I wouldn't say no matter how strange. I mean, obviously, some of them don't have many followers or they only ha or they have a lot of followers only in this very limited area that's not going to have a big impact or at least, or although I I say that sometimes an idea that's unpopular or or just kind of obscure can suddenly zoom into prominence after 10 years in obscurity some of those satanic panic ideas of the 80s they were being touted on places like 2020 were being or circulating in much more out of the way venues you know back in the 1970s but it's um and with the JFK assassination, I mean, you know, every death of a president leads to conspiracy theories of some kind or another. I mean, that's just a fact. Every single president who's died in office, there have been conspiracy theories. The Kennedy ones have had a staying power thus far that the others haven't. The others, I mean, except Lincoln. I mean, but, I mean, Abraham Lincoln is so central to American history. People will be talking about that as long as the U.S. is around, and if not after, longer. John F. Kennedy, it's more interesting, though, because it's he wasn't present for that long. He didn't have any really big accomplishments. Probably his most Notable accomplishment. I mean, I, I mean, he set some things rolling, which range from you know the moonshot to the Vietnam War in terms of how people, how good people feel about them. But in his case, it's more about this sort of, on the one hand, this feeling of possibility that was cut short for the people who lived through it, and then the chaos that followed, which I think really got linked in people's head to the death of the president and this idea that. Perhaps there could have been a, a different path, and the, the whole sort of period from 1963, you know, and about from that, about two decades starting there, everything that happened, other assassinations, riots, uh, the war in, in Vietnam, um, scandals, you know, th there is this notion that we kind of were set on that path in Dealey Plaza on November 22nd, 1963, and I think that that gave it. A lot of it, 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 
it made people more likely to speculate about a conspiracy because it just made that assassination seem so central to American history, probably more central to American history than it really was, because I think a lot of that stuff would have happened anyway. I don't think JFK was going to pull us out of Vietnam, for example. I think, uh, you know, Lyndon Johnson's uh, liberal reforms probably would not have gone nearly as far if John F. Kennedy were not dead, in fact. It's so I, I, I have a hard time imagining that you'd see, uh, you know, things playing out differently in terms of, you know, the, the ferment and unrest of the 60s and so on. So it, it's a it's kind of a, 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 a the centrality of that assassination to America, US, recent U.S. history is a myth. But that myth just and, and the uh, the effects that all those things had on people's lives kind of, I think, encouraged, you know, all that conspiracy speculation. And the question for me is, as the people who are alive then, you know, die off and fade away, will people care as much about the Kennedy assassination? The, the last few years, the poll numbers that show how many people believe in it have come down. I mean, it's around half the country right now. It depends on which poll you look at. But in the past, it's been up around 80%. At one point, more than 80% of Americans saying some sort of conspiracy was behind Kennedy's death. And is that going to keep coming down? I don't know, but I wouldn't be surprised if it does. Mm. Does it ever pay politically for a politician to indulge or play with these kinds of conspiracy theories? Politicians have used conspiracy theories to to help themselves for a long time. I mean, in part, I am talking about conspiracy theories that don't get acknowledged, or at least not acknowledged at the time, as conspiracy theories. You know, uh, you know, like you know, war propaganda. You know, making claims about what the enemies of the country are allegedly doing that later turns out to be false, but you know, can help uh, get people behind certain policies and things like that. So, in that sense, certainly there are people who have, you know, politicians who have benefited from playing with that sort of that sort of story but even in t- moving away from that kind of example because I, I i tell that to people and they say oh that's not what i mean by conspiracy theory uh, one politician i'm really fascinated by especially in the trump era was w leo daniel who was the governor of texas and then a senator from texas in the uh, 1930s and 1940s and he's better known as papio daniel if the name rings a bell it's probably because they put him in a coen brothers movie and moved him to mississippi which was a brother where art thou but he got elected president i mean he got elected governor in a sort of trumpian way of he was a radio star and he went around doing these big rallies and at first the press was ignoring him or sort of poo-pooing his chances but and then rallies get bigger and bigger and you know Gradually, he surprises. Eventually, he surprises everybody and gets elected. And then, some another way he resembles Trump is that he was whatever skill he had at um, campaigning in a non-traditional way. In his case, going around with a band on top of a bus, you know, and things like that. He really hadn't the faintest idea how to pass a legislative agenda, and didn't have a very big legislative agenda of his own to begin with. Just some vague ideas about abolishing the poll tax and uh, and having bigger pen or having pensions for senior citizens in Texas. And uh, he, as he had trouble getting stuff through the legislature, in part because he was constantly alienating the people he needed to work with, he went looking for scapegoats and uh, at one point claimed that uh, he had a list of communist and Nazi saboteurs that had infiltrated the state's factories. But of course, he wouldn't tell anyone the agent's name, the names of these you know, alleged subversives. He sent a wire to Franklin Roosevelt to tell him he had confidential information about the conspiracy and he was going to send some of his 
best man over, you know, to brief him. And the people in the agencies that he was taught, that he was saying had this information, they didn't have an idea what he was talking about. But, you know, he opened up, but he said, like, anyone out there, anyone in Texas who's got information about un-American activities, uh, send it in. And all these letters start pouring into the Texas Rangers, talking about, you know, conversations people overheard, weird things they saw, what might be going on. Uh, and then the Texas Rangers had to chase down all these all these tips which you know led pretty much nowhere you know people saying oh there's some i mean literally people saying some jehovah's witnesses were coming through and i think we're up to no good and things like that in that case there was a specific letter that claimed that jehovah was when they when they used the word jehovah they it was like a code word they were actually meaning hitler so there was he set off this witch hunt and you know it it worked for him he he didn't get much passed but he got reelected and the only reason he eventually stopped being governor is because he got elected senator he he's one of the few people ever to beat Lyndon Johnson in an election and in that case it was partly because some of the local uh, industry that couldn't stand having him as governor thought that getting him out to Washington would be a good way to get him out of their hair and they arranged some ballot box stuffing um, so that's a real conspiracy so it it was it but you know it it worked for him it worked for his style and it it's sort of just a classic case of the way a politician can invoke scapegoats even in really vague and contradictory ways and and have it uh, help keep him afloat. We've definitely seen this in other countries too, right? I mean, it's not just simply America, the most famous case being the Nazis themselves, which came up with the ultimate conspiracy, Jews and Bolsheviks uh, trying to take over the world. Well, they didn't come up with that one, <laughs> but yeah, they really, <laughs> they, they, they really managed to, uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, it, this is done in all sorts of places, of course. And, and I should say, because some people misread me on this, I, 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 I say it explicitly in the book and sometimes people still miss it. I am not claiming that Americans are more paranoid than anyone else in, on the planet. I, I, I wrote this book in order to look at American history through the prism of what have people been afraid of, but I'm sure someone could write a similar book about Russia, about Iran, about China. Yeah, it, it, it's a, pretty much any culture, and, and some of those I mentioned are notorious. Right? I, actually, I just got a review copy. I haven't read it yet of a book about conspiracy theories in Russia, and I know there's a lot to work with there. And you know, in, in general, many people have gotten ahead by scapegoating uh, groups, and one way to scapegoat a group is to uh, spread conspiracy theories about them. Jesse Walker, thank you so much for coming on War College to talk to us about all of this. Well, thank you. You can't really do an effective parody of conspiracism because it gets immediately co-opted into the paranoid style and the conspiracist uh, uh, frame of mind. Uh, there's nothing that cannot be believed. You're listening to War College, a weekly podcast that brings you the stories from behind the front lines. Here are your hosts. Matthew Galt and Jason Fields. Hello and welcome to War College. I am Matthew Galt. And I'm Jason Fields. We're back with another episode of the War College Annex. These are those bonus episodes that go off the beaten path. And again, we're talking about QAnon, the popular internet-driven conspiracy theory that supposes President Trump is at war with an ancient and powerful pedophile cult. 
When QAnon believers began showing up at Trump rallies, the media took notice, and in early August, BuzzFeed published a report supposing that Q was an elaborate left-wing prank on believers. The evidence? A book published in Italy in the 1990s titled Q. With us today is Wu Ming Wan, one of the authors of that book. He's here to help us disentangle QAnon from the novel, talk about the importance of conspiracy theories to culture, and what makes a good cultural prank, and how you can use pranks to debunk conspiracy theories. Wu Ming Wan, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. So my first question is, are you responsible for QAnon? Of course not. All right, well, let's... Can you explain the plot of the book and why people might think that you are? Okay. Uh, the novel Q was published for the first time in uh, the springtime of 1999 in Italy, the Italian edition. Then, then it was translated into 18 languages and published in 30 countries, including the U.S. Of course, uh, on that side of the Atlantic, uh, the book is uh, was far less successful then in Europe, it became kind of a cult novel in some niches, but uh, it was never as famous as it was in Italy and uh, several other European countries. It was published in 2004 in the US. The novel Q was uh, the final contribution that I and uh, three other co-authors gave uh, to the so-called Luther Bliss Project. Uh, which uh, was a project of cultural agitation and communication guerrilla uh, that lasted from 1994 to 1999. I think we can talk about that later on. Uh, now I'll focus on the novel. Um, the novel uh, uh, is set in the 16th century on the backdrop of the radical uprisings that followed Martin Luther's uh, Reformation, and especially uh, the first part is focused on the Peasants' War, which was this huge peasant insurrection in Germany, led by a guy uh, uh, named Thomas Münzer, uh, which means uh, Thomas the Coiner. And uh, then uh, the plot moves to other attempts at, you know, at revolution uh, in the course of, the, of that century. It was, uh, it was a very turbulent uh, century uh, back then with a lot of religious wars and a lot of heresies springing out like mushrooms. Okay, and we follow the main character. The main character has no name. Uh, he, he changes name every time he changes town. Chapter by chapter, he, he um, adopts uh, several names and new identities. We never really get to know his real name. He's a radical and a Baptist revolutionary. Uh, a former um, a former student of theology at Wittenberg, which is the same town in which uh, uh, Martin Luther uh, Luther wrote his uh, famous thesis, and he nailed them on the, the door, you know, of uh, cath uh, of um, the cathedral of Wittenberg Cathedral. Well, this guy uh, this guy is um, followed at a distance by another guy who's the villain in our novel. Uh, this guy is an agent provocateur. He's a spy, a secret agent. Uh, he works for the Pope, uh, for the Vatican, and uh, he sends uh, uh, letters to Thomas Munter and other radical leaders, spreading uh, deliberately, spreading false information, you know, fake news, 
in order to uh, to make uh, the the peasant army fall into a trap. So he keeps sending this letter, posing as a fellow radical. Uh, he uh, says that uh, he writes from uh, kind of you know top levels of power in a way. He uh, claims to be an infiltrator, but of course he's doing uh, he's double crossing them. He's doing uh, a double game, and uh, he keeps sending these letters, which are signed Kohelet which in Hebrew means a preacher. Of course, it's uh, a book of the Bible, you know, uh, Kohelet. At the same time, he keeps sending reports of his own activities to his boss. His boss is Giovanni Pietro Carafa, cardinal, uh, later to become a pope uh, himself, uh, Paul IV, okay, uh, the guy who renewed Inquisition uh, in, in, in the 1540s. Um, well, uh, these dispatches are signed Q, simply as Q. And he reports about uh, his misleading activities. He's uh, spreading, you know, urban legends and uh, false pieces of information and stuff like that. He is uh, the main cause in our novel, not in actual history, but in our novel, he is the main cause of the peasant army's defeat in Frankenhausen. Uh, in 1525, uh, the whole uh, revolutionary army led by Thomas Luther uh, moved to marched to towards uh, this uh, city in uh, Thuringia called Frankenhausen uh, in which uh, they had a field battle they they thought it, w- it would be the final definitive battle for victory uh, and they were confronted by a huge a huge uh, reactionary army uh, uh, hired by the princes and and the bishops they were it was a crushing defeat. They were uh, not only defeated, but practically exterminated. So uh, it was the end for that uh, early example of modern class revolution. Uh, then our character moves uh, to this other town called Münster, uh, in which revolutionary take over and kind of uh, start a, a commune like the, the Paris Commune in 1871. But uh, this guy, Q, uh, is a uh, infiltrates uh, this struggle too and he keeps spreading false information until they defeat it's it's, it's uh, uh, like that all the time until until the end the end of the novel so people in this country find this book relevant because uh, well is it because they think that it's an allegory or do they think that it's a conspiracy that started then and is still going on today uh, the book was an allegory of our own activities, the activities of uh, the, the Luther Bliss project in the second half of the 90s in Italy and other countries of continental Europe and also a little bit in the UK. Um, we conceived it, we constructed it as an allegory. It's about, uh, uh, you know, psychological warfare. It's about techniques of communication guerrilla. It's about pulling pranks. On, on a level, on, uh, there, there are other levels of interpretation, of course, but that uh, was uh, the one that caused uh, a sensation in uh, in those days when it was published in Italy. That it became kind of a, 
uh, night table book, a livre de chevet, as they say in French, for a new generation of activists, the, the generation uh, that after the so-called battle of Seattle at the end of 1999 started to, you know, confront uh, neoliberal globalization and they started to uh, protest uh, at uh, big summits, big meetings for, of the WTO, the World Bank, uh, uh, the G8, uh, uh, like in Genoa in uh, 2001. That generation of activists took uh, cue as a, um, a, a whole set of references. Uh, uh, people used to call themselves with the names of the characters of the novel and stuff like that. So it, it was uh, it was a bestseller. It's a long seller. Uh, it, this side of the Atlantic, not the other side of the Atlantic, in which is uh, less known. All right. Well, let's let's zoom out a little bit and let's start because I want to dig into the project that kind of gave rise to the book um, and this idea of, I guess, conspiracy theories or cultural pranks for good that are kind of righteous. Uh, but first, can you explain to us what the paranoid style is? This, I think that's a really important concept to grasp here. Okay, the, the paranoid style is what defines a conspiracy theory. It's a, a, a rhetoric, uh, it's, a f- it's a frame of mind. Uh, it was uh, f- defined for the first time by a political scientist, an American political scientist, uh, Richard Hofstadter. Back in 1964, he wrote a seminal essay, a very important essay called The Paranoid Style in American Politics, in which he dealt uh, mainly with the kind of conspiracies that the John Bur- society used to talk about at that time okay but he traced the origins of the paranoid style at least in the US back uh, in uh, uh, the 1830s and for example he demonstrated that uh, such uh, important figures like Samuel uh, B. Morse the inventor of the telegraph and the Morse code uh, indulged very much in anti-Semitic conspiracy theories and, and stuff like that. Okay, so the paranoid style is a useful concept, concept because it uh, can help us uh, make uh, uh, the correct distinction between actual conspiracies, okay, and conspiracism. Okay, um, because we shouldn't make the mistake of saying that conspiracies don't exist, because of course some conspiracies do exist. Uh, what is a conspiracy? You have a conspiracy when a group of people, or more than one people, agree in secret to take some action against someone else, a third party, against someone else's interests, at, at least. Okay, so th- there are some requirements, some characteristics. There might be more than one person, otherwise it's not a conspiracy, of course. Uh, the agreement between those persons must be secret, because if you do things in broad daylight, that's not a conspiracy. Everyone can see what you're doing. And the most important characteristic, at least according to me, action must be against someone. The example that they usually make is if you organize a surprise party for your dad's birthday, that's not a conspiracy. Because you are agreeing in secret with other people, but not against someone else. Because you're not conspiring against your dad by organizing a surprise party. It must be a very awful party in order to to have that characteristic. Okay, so you can say that conspiracies do exist, but real, actual conspiracies have some key characteristics 
that make them very different from the kind of convoluted, cumbersome conspiracy theories which conspiracists dream about and share and spread. Okay. Well, give us an example of a real-life conspiracy, like one that was actually true. Watergate. Watergate. I, I, I... I held a lecture here. I'm in Montreal right now. I held a lecture uh, yesterday about uh, these issues, and they made the example of Watergate. Okay, uh, Watergate was an actual conspiracy. There were some aides and collaborators and lackeys of Richard Nixon who effectively uh, agreed in secret in order to take some action against the people who they whom they perceived as Nixon's enemies. Of course, that's why those burglars were wiretapping uh, the Watergate hot hotel that, that night, okay? And they were caught in the act. The fact that they were caught in the act is very interesting, okay? Because that gives us the opportunity to focus of the, uh, I, I don't know if the English term is correct, the imperfectness of actual conspiracies. They are not perfect. Uh, okay, so usually real conspiracies have a very specific aim, okay, a precise focus. In that case, the focus was on Nixon's enemies, and uh, the, there was a, uh, a set of uh, uh, limited practices, which those people used to call rat-facking, okay? Uh, it, it was a way of sabotage the activities of, uh, you know, democratic leaders and, and uh, people whom they perceived as Nixon's enemies. Real conspiracy, second characteristic, real conspiracies usually involve a limited number of actors. In that case, there were uh, five or six uh, uh, important uh, people belonging to Richard Nixon's team, and then there were, yeah, some, some other lakeys and agents, but the number of people taking part in the Watergate conspiracy always remained very limited, okay? The, the people who went on trial later on, okay? The other one is... Actual conspiracies uh, usually have a somewhat shaky development. Uh, they're not uh, as coherent as the imaginary conspiracies, okay? Uh, and the fact that those burglars were caught in flagrante, okay, is a demonstration that uh, things we were... Uh, the, the peop these people acted in a very clumsy way, actually, okay? Uh, so you have a shaky development and a narrative of the conspiracies that's not that uh, uh, co uh, paranoically coherent, okay? And it's usually very easy to sum up. The, the, uh, co the narrative of an actual conspiracy is usually very easily easy to uh, summarize, okay? Uh, I just did that with the in, in the case of Watergate. Uh, the other thing is that actual conspiracy usually don't last long before they are discovered and exposed. In that case, it lasted a few years, okay? And it was uh, discovered. People found out about it, uh, and uh, there was an, uh, an investigation, a journalistic inquiry, you know, Woodward and Bernstein, uh, and uh, the conspiracy was exposed a few years after it had started. And the most important one, the fifth one, at least uh, to my advice, is that once a real conspiracy is exposed, it's over. The end, over. Its effects may persist, but operations stop. They cease. Okay. On the contrary, the kind of conspiracy that's imagined 
and built up and uh, talked about by conspiracy theorists, it's exactly the opposite. Usually, an alleged conspiracy has the widest possible scope, not a specific purpose, but the the widest one, uh, because usually this kind of conspiracy allegedly aims at ruling or conquering or destroying the planet, you know, the whole world. Okay. The second characteristic is that um, this kind of conspiracy, of alleged conspiracy, involves a huge and potentially unlimited number of actors. Uh, and this number seems to increase and increase and increase at every account because anyone who denies the existence of the conspiracy is immediately denounced as part of it. So uh, the number keeps increasing, increasing, increasing. And at the end, there are multitudes, you know, of people allegedly being part of the conspiracy. We saw this with Pizzagate, we saw this with QAnon as well. Okay. Um, and uh, this is contrary to Occam's razor. You know, Occam's razor said, non sunt multiplicanda entia sine necessitati, which means keep things easy, keep, uh, keep things easy to explain. Don't multiply factors, you know, don't add uh, useless uh, complexity to your description of reality. Okay. Uh, the other one is that the, the alleged conspiracy usually is carried out in an extremely coherent, ultra-consistent way. Because in the, in the, in the narrative of, of that kind of conspiracy, things always go exactly as, as planned. Everything confirms the narrative. Every detail fits perfectly in. Okay. Every piece of, of the jigsaw puzzle fits uh, perfectly. So ultra-coherent. The, uh, the fourth one is that this kind of conspiracy is eternal. Uh, it uh, it goes on indefinitely. Uh, some of these conspiracies are described as being going on for decades, and other ones uh, even for centuries or millennia. Okay, and fifth one, <laughs> this kind of conspiracy allegedly keeps going on, on, on. It goes on uh, despite. The, uh, in spite of the existence of <laughs> hundreds of books and articles and websites and videos and postcards allegedly exposing it, even if it's exposed, it keeps going on. Okay, so it's exactly the opposite of an actual conspiracy like Watergate. Each one of these five characteristics is exactly the opposite of the, the, the previous set of characteristics. And you've you've designed some conspiracies yourself, correct? Or you've been a part of it? We practically debunked some conspiracies. Uh, we devised pranks as a practical critique and a direct intervention against conspiracism. That's what we did with the Luther Blissett Project, with some of our extremely elaborate media pranks. You know, because we pulled some very complex pranks kind of LARPs, because they were so complex that they required the assistance and the collaboration and the imagination of dozens of people uh, all across the country, all across Italy. Um, we uh, pulled uh, those kind of pranks, for example, in the middle to late 90s, in order to show how dangerous the, the great uh, pedophilia uh, slash satanic ritual abuse scare 
was, okay, because there was mass paranoia about uh, Satanists and uh, pedophiles back in those days, it was the same wave of moral panic that had invested the U.S. in the 80s. You know, after that book, Michelle remembers there was a, there was this satanic ritual abuse scare, uh, child abuse scare, that kind, uh, that kind of stuff. That same wave invested Europe a few years later. Okay, especially after this serial killer, this guy Mark Dutroux, the monster of Marcinelle uh, in Belgium, was uh, a Arrested, and it was discovered that he had uh, tortured and killed a lot of kids, etc. After that, there was a huge wave of moral panic, and uh, several innocent people were uh, victims of that climate, you know, of that atmosphere, uh, extremely paranoid atmosphere, and uh, they were arrested with uh, horrible charges, uh, uh, sent to prison in uh, solitary confinement uh, on uh, on a basis that was the basis of conspiracism, okay, because there was this vision of secret dungeons, uh, secret tunnels, uh, where ritual child abuse uh, was taking place with the cooperation of several uh, people, secret operators, even politicians, and stuff stuff like that, okay. So, we devised uh, some pranks as uh, part of a our counter investigations and sometimes a solidarity campaigns to show that uh, some defendants in important trials uh, that were accused of satanic ritual abuse were actually innocent and in fact they were all acquitted they were all acquitted and the money even gave them and the state even gave them money uh, as a compensation for their unjust uh, unjust uh, imprisonment Okay, so we devised some pranks uh, uh, that were um, that aimed at showing that it was all bullshit. Okay, for example, uh, one with the most complex one was played by really dozens of people in near Rome, in a town near Rome called. Viterbo, uh, in the backwoods around the town, uh, that prank lasted a year. Uh, we simulated the existence of the existence of a satanic sect of um, uh, black masses taking place uh, in the in the woods, uh, and, and even we faked the existence of a group of Christian anti-satanist vigilantes looking for satanists in order to beat them up, to disrupt their rituals uh, and stuff like that. It was all made up, okay? There were neither satanists nor vigilantes, no black mass, no uh, ritual abuse, nothing like that. There were only fake pictures, uh, uh, uncanny objects which we left uh, in the woods, and especially some particularly crazy communique, you know, press releases, which we sent to the local and national media, and they were signed by this group called the COSAMO Committee for the Safeguard of Morals. It was this group of anti-Satanist vigilantes. And the media, the local press at the beginning, and then also the national media, media, they believed everything. They published everything with no fact-checking at all, because we were in the middle of a, of, of a, uh, you know, of a moral panic wave, and everyone was talking about ritual abuse and pedophilia and satanists. So, also, politicians at a certain point jumped on the bandwagon of mass paranoia, uh, and uh, 
the 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 tipping point was when we managed to get footage of a fake satanic ritual broadcast in the national TV news, in the prime time TV news on a national level. It was a very um, clumsy and blurred video. Uh, You didn't see anything, actually. It was all, you know, in the the shadow uh, with uh, people with hoods on uh, and candles and stuff like that. And they uh, and they broadcast it and commented upon it. Uh, At the end, we claimed the responsibility for the whole thing after after a whole year, it lasted a whole year, uh, we claimed the responsibility and produced a huge mass of evidence proving that we were responsible for that and, and uh, Satanists and vigilantes uh, had actually never existed. We uh, caused quite a sensation. Uh, but also the Luther Blizzard Project was responsible for a huge a huge counter inquiry on cases of uh, uh, false, uh, you know, false uh, accusations of uh, on uh, of child child abuse. Let, the- let me ask you a question though. So, so once you revealed that you were behind the prank, do you think that there were people who continued to believe it anyway? I mean, is that a concern? No, no, not in that case. Not in that case, because we had a reputation. Okay, we already had a reputation. We had been pulling pranks like that, maybe not that complex all the time, for years. Okay, so because our project started in 1994, this prank, this uh, pseudo-satanic prank was in 1998. So uh, um, for 40 years, we had been pulling pranks. Okay, organizing pranks and uh, the name Luther Blissett was associated with this kind of activities. Uh, I mean, the the purpose of the whole Luther Blissett project thing was to adopt uh, the same uh, moniker, the same uh, pseudonym, then the same name uh, altogether. Hundreds of people, hundreds of artists and activists, cultural agitators adopted the same name and used it in order to, you know, sign their you know, works of art or writings or, or performances or claiming responsibility for pranks. So uh, Luther Blissett was famous, kind of a Robin Hood of a digital age. Uh, a social bandit, uh, a prankster. Every action added to the reputation of this imaginary guy who was a collective entity, actually. So when we claimed responsibility for that, everyone believed it because we already had a a track. We had a reputation. This reminds me of Houdini or James Randi. Right. Who are both, who are both magicians that would, that would debunk spiritualism uh, by showing you how you did the trick. And then explaining the trick to you. Yeah, yeah, there are some similarities. Yeah, many, yeah, actually many similarities. We were, we were always being very much interested in magic. It was about uh, claiming responsibility by explaining in detail what kind of tricks we had used and what kind of bugs in the information system we had taken advantage of in order to pull the prank. So it, it had an educational aspect, kind of, because, uh, what can I say, we uh, focused on cultural automatisms and then said it, and then told, uh, we, we usually told people, uh, you acted, you acted uh, following a cultural automatism. You are in the middle, uh, in the middle of a, you know, a moral panic wave. And so you instantly believed that kind of bullshit because everyone's, everyone's talking about 
that kind of bullshit by but by cl- claiming claiming that it's real we proved that we faked it okay for for one that we fake it how many more are fake and are faked by the media or are automatically generated by a cultural automatism, you know, because there's no conspiracy behind this kind of, of stuff. Nobody decides that there will be a, a wave of moral panic about a particularly sensitive issue. Nobody decides that there's no conspiracy on that level. Of course, there's culture. Culture has some mechanisms and some, uh, it, it undergoes many phases, you know, uh, things. Things happen. Okay, so we always explained uh, the kind of, you know, flaws in the media system we had exploited in order to pull the prank, and it was kind of an educational DIY aspect. Okay, you can do that too if you organize. You can do that too. Okay, you don't have to uh, be a passive consumer of me of the media. Okay, you can you can counteract. Uh, Okay, in cases like this. Uh, so uh, our pranks uh, had the three important aspects. You know, uh, uh, the content that we that we choose to to put in the, into them, because these pranks were always pulled in order to raise uh, awareness on some sensitive issues, and especially on, on how the media talked about those sensitive issues. Okay, so uh, the uh, the content was never produced at random, you know, we, we, it was very deliberate, okay, we, we had meetings and we decided what, what to do. And then there was this do-it-yourself aspect and this kind of reverse engineering aspect explaining what we had done and the account of how we did the prank was always more important than the prank itself, okay, and then there was this uh, aspect of Com- uh, I, I, which I would call communitarian because each prank added to Luther Blissett reputation and made uh, calling yourself Luther Blissett ever more appealing. So you have to build a myth first. Yeah, exactly. And you were part of that myth. You were not a passive uh, contemplator, a passive consumer of that myth. You were part of it in an active way, in an engaging way, and you felt uh, being part of a warm community of people sharing the same purpose, okay? You shared a certain style, a certain uh, imagery, uh, even if you never met the other members in person, okay? Because the, 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 there were cases in which some, some people gave important contribution without ever meeting in person. The other, uh, for example, we had regular meetings in which we met uh, um, in, in Bologna. We were... 50, 50, about 50 people. Also in Rome, there was a huge group, okay, but there were other individual contributors to the Luther Bridge Project that were, you know, scattered apart in the whole country or even in other countries, sometimes uh, communicating with each other via uh, the mail art uh, network. No, because uh, the Luther Bridge Project came out of the kind of... Yeah, there were some underground currents in, in, in culture, you know, uh, in, in the eighties, uh, and of pieces, small pieces of art and zines sent uh, via uh, the snail mail, via the surface mail. And it was a huge net- network predating the internet. Uh, and some people communicated with each other about Luther Blissett via the mail art network. Okay. So there were three, three aspects, uh, the content, the, DIY aspect and community. That was the most important thing. But it's, it's, uh, uh, revealing. It's very interesting that you talked about Randy 
uh, and Houdini because uh, we mm, strictly collaborate with uh, magicians. You know, uh, there's uh, this guy who's part of the Wumin Foundation called Mariano Tomatis, who is a magician, a historian of illusions. He focuses his work on exploring ways of uh, revealing the trick behind the magic act in a way, in a way which doesn't spoil the magic act, but, but makes it even more magic. There are some examples of that. Yes, yesterday I, I showed a video with Penn and Teller. You know, I think Penn and Teller are the best illusionists in the world. Uh, uh, there, uh, there are some magic acts in which they show the exact tricks that they just used. First, they perform the act, and people are in awe. Uh, they, 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 they look at them and say, wow! And then they repeat the act, uh, for example, with transparent props, so you can see all, all the secret moves that they're doing. Uh, you understand that you've been misdirected the first time, and you see that there's a lot of work behind a magic act. Seeing that, you're even more in awe than before. And you go, wow, wow, because there's a way of revealing a trick that makes magic even more magic. And that's what we did with our pranks. Well, so let me ask, uh, do you think that that kind of prank is what's happening in the United States? Is that behind any of these really outlandish conspiracy theories? Or do you think that the conspiracy theories we have now are just organic? Yeah, I think they're just organic. Uh, uh, there's something in, in American, in Western culture, not only in American culture, which keeps uh, creating, creating conspiracy theories. There are some key elements that keep resurfacing. For example, this thing of child abuse and secret dungeons. Uh, uh, it's it faded out uh, at the end of the 80s or in the early 90s in the US, and they and, and then uh, resurfaced with Pizzagate uh, in uh, 20. 16, then uh, Pizzagate seemed to fade out, but uh, it became Pedogate for a while and then uh, took the definitive shape of Q and on. But there's always the thing of secret rings, of pedophiles, of dungeons. I mean, uh, Comet Ping Pong in Washington, D.C. didn't even have a, a dungeon. Uh, they didn't even have a basement. But people kept saying that there was a basement in which uh, ritual child abuse took place with the complicity of top democratic officials and leaders and, and stuff like that. Okay. So there are some archetypes that keeps that keep resurfacing. Do you think your kind of myth busting techniques would be effective now, or is the world too different? Is the media cycle too different? Uh, mutatis mutandis, as they say in Latin, we change in the necessary things to change. Well, I think uh, we're still exploring that kind of stuff. Even we we don't pull prank anymore, but we keep exploring uh, that way of uh, you know we called it. Showing the stitches, you know, like the stitchings on the body of uh, the Frankenstein monster. Okay, you see the stitches, so you understand that he's composed of multiple parts of multiple cadavers. Okay, we show, even in our fiction, in our way of uh, telling stories, of writing novels, or, or, or even writing nonfiction, we always we say we keep uh, the uh, the factory open. We show our tools. Uh, we always explain the kind of techniques that we use. 
used uh, because uh, we're still looking for uh, that particular way of revealing tricks that doesn't spoil magic. Okay, so that's that's what we, we, we keep thinking. Um, when uh, uh, we uh, tweeted about QAnon for the first time, okay, a lot of people were interested, in, including you, Matthew, uh, and we received uh, several requests of interviews from uh, several countries, not only the U.S., also Germany, France, and Italy. Okay, what uh, we did in that particular case was, okay, seeding doubt about the origins of QAnon, always saying we're not sure it started as a prank. If it started as a prank, it was a miscalculated one. Uh, if it started as a parody, they didn't take into account what Umberto Eco showed in his masterpiece, Foucault's Pendulum, that you can't really do an effective parody of conspiracism because it gets immediately co-opted into the paranoid style and the conspiracist uh, uh, frame of mind. Uh, there's nothing that cannot be believed. There's nothing that's too much Okay, so you do a parody, you do a satire, and you will find people who actually believe it. Okay, so if it started as parody, uh, it was doomed to be completely ineffective. If it started as a prank, you know, um, uh, people, uh, either from the left or even from the most... Uh, you know, uh, irreverent uh, currents of the alt-right, you know, started as a prank in order to troll the gullible rightists who would believe that kind of bullshit. Uh, it, it, it immediately got out of hand and took a life of its own. So we, you know, started to see the doubt, but in, in a rational way. But what we also did was revive the spirit of our old pranks. I mean, because we uh, we um, we think that popping the conspiracy balloon is absolutely ineffective. Uh, a, a debunking that's all, uh, all that's only rational, you know, with rational arguments, uh, falls flat. It doesn't work. It doesn't work. That's what we in Italian we call it debunking ratio suprematista, racial supremacist, uh, which because it establishes a supremacy of reason, you know, with a sound argument and with uh, facts, uh, unassailable facts, you can debunk a conspiracy. It doesn't work like that because conspiracy theories operate on the level of myths, okay, which is completely unassailable by by reason alone. You have to do something else. So what we did in that case was to uh, inoculate into the debate on QAnon the word prank. After that, as, as, you, as, you, as you noticed, uh, the frame in which QAnon was discussed was slightly rearranged and there was some sense of bafflement that spread in some uh, uh, rightist milieu, okay, because the word prank was enough to, you know, to raise suspicion. But we, um, we also did, we weren't sure about that, but uh, the, the most important thing is that we made the examples of our work, our 90s work, uh, so we tried to inoculate some sense of wonder, something that was fun, because the problem is that debunking is not fun, while conspiracism is. People who are into conspiracies enjoy that dimension very much, okay? Because uh, conspiracism and the paranoid style, in a way, in a very warped way, uh, encounter some um, basic needs that we as humans have, okay, um, conspiracists uh, play in the same league as psychics, 
uh, the, the astrologers, uh, you know, sorcerers, uh, magicians, uh, healers. Uh. It puts a little bit of magic and excitement back into the world for people. Exactly. That's precisely that. It's precisely that. Okay. Because we do need a sense of wonder in our lives. We do need difference, uh, different angles from which looking at things. Uh, we need that. Okay. And they provide it while rational debunking doesn't provide it. If you could do the uh, debunking, debunking of conspiracies while retaining the same sense of wonder which conspiracists exploit, that would be great. It, it's the right thing to do. That's why we, we focus the attention on, on those illusionists who explain the tricks because they are kind of debunking themselves but retaining the sense of wonder. And the other thing that's important is that every conspiracy theory, even the craziest one, has a kernel of truth. And if you don't talk about that kernel of truth, you reinforce, you reinforce the belief in, in the conspiracy theory. We made a lot of, of, of examples in the past few weeks and also in my lecture yesterday at McGill University. For example, I did the example of chemtrails, you know. Chemtrails are a distorted version of uh, a legitimate, uh, you know, preoccupation for climate change. Okay, uh, the system cannot deny itself. Okay, it all uh, it always bends every feeling and emotion, tries to bend every feeling and emotion and anxiety and preoccupation towards a we call it diversionary narrative. A narrative that's more or less about the same issue, but doesn't address its core. Okay, so the chemtrails conspiracy theory was born because of that. Because you you have people, okay, that see the signs of climate change every day, but they are surrounded by people who deny it or uh, acknowledge it, but don't do anything relevant to stop it. Okay, so there's kind of cognitive dissonance. Because people think, but if the situation is so bad, why uh, the people in power don't do anything about it? How can the situation be so bad if everyone goes uh, on with their with the habits, uh, with the same things every day, like uh, as, as though life could go on forever like this? Uh, but uh, there are images of doom on the TV. There are hurricanes. Uh, gigantic fires devastating, devastating, uh, you know, the Southern California woods. Uh, you have uh, floods, you have droughts, uh, but uh, you, you have uh, at the White House, there's a guy, there's a, there's a climate change negationist. He, he denies even the existence of, of the phenomenon. And uh, even the politicians who acknowledge the phenomenon don't do anything about it, okay? Because of, of the Paris Protocols is a farce. Of course, nobody's doing nothing, okay? So these uh, you, uh, people have to cope with this cognitive dissonance, uh, and uh, uh, a, a diversionary narrative is produced, is automatically generated. And even the symptom is correct, because the increase in air traffic with low-cost flights, etc. It's true that you see more chemtrails. Contrails. Contrails. The real thing is a contrail. <laughs> Condensation trail is what it's short for. I just want to, sorry, I just want to stick that in there. But they do call them chemtrails. The conspiracists do. 
the conspiracists do. I just wanted to get the real thing there. It's a chemical process anyway. It's not the chemical process they, they think it is. Okay, but it's true that the uh, increase in air traffic is also increasing air pollution and stuff like that. So the symptom is more or less correct. But uh, the problem is the diversionary narrative that uh, uh, takes people away from the kernel of truth of their conspiracy and prevents them from correctly addressing the issue. Okay, and the real issue behind all this is climate change. Okay, so every conspiracy has a kernel of truth. Even 9-11 truthers uh, have a conspiracy that has a kernel of truth, that, but it is perverted into, into a diversionary narrative. Well, let me, let me ask you this then. What, what is the kernel of truth at the center of QAnon? Uh, the kernel of truth of QAnon is that people are insecure about who's in power, is that uh, there are all these, you know, uh, uh, state agencies, uh, intelligence uh, uh, agencies uh, that you don't really know what they do. There was uh, sometimes ago there was all the NSA controversy uh, about uh, you know the, the government spying on uh, on citizens uh, all the time. Uh, okay, so there were the, the, all the WikiLeaks uh, controversy. There was Snowden uh, fleeing from the country and taking refuge in in Russia. Uh, so people heard about that in a confused way. So you don't really know what those guys are doing at the Pentagon, at the NSA, at the CIA, and, and stuff like that. Of course, they're not having child sex, okay? It's not about pedophilia, uh, nothing like that. And that's also another important kernel of truth. Uh, I'm not the first one to, to uh, notice it and focus on it. There's uh, another cognitive uh, dissonance uh, here, and this is the, the, the gap uh, between uh, uh, the utopian kind of utopian expectations which uh, uh, Donald Trump fans had about uh, his presidency and the grim reality, uh, a boring also for, for them reality of uh, his uh, presidency because he isn't doing anything for the white working class or stuff like that. So I have to cope with the, with this uh, and uh, you know kind of fill the gap between uh, what they thought he would do and what he's doing. And so the result is you think he isn't doing anything, okay, uh, from their point of view, of course. You think he isn't doing that, but in secret, he's fighting against an evil cabal of pedophiles uh, running the world, uh, and he's a genius, and he's playing a multidimensional chess game, all in secret, because you don't see anything about that, of course. <laughs> and, and so there's a cognitive dissonance, uh, there's a, a kind of fantasy that was creator, uh, created in order to overcome disillusionment and disappointment about the Trump presidency, because also them uh, are, are disappointed by this presidency, because it's no right-wing utopia as they thought. Wu Ming Wan, thank you so much for coming on the show and talking us through all of that. Uh, thank you very much for having me. It was, it was fun. <laughs> That's it for this week. Thank you so much for giving the team a much-needed rest. War College is me, Matthew Galt, and Kevin Nodell, and Derek Gannon. It was created by myself and Jason Fields, who you actually got to hear this week. We're on Twitter, Facebook, and all the rest. Drop us a line, leave a comment, like, and subscribe, all that stuff. Please enjoy Memorial Day, and remember that, it's, that not all veterans like fireworks, and there's more reasons for the day than buying something on sale at Best Buy.